It's obviously autobiographical. It's obviously to do with women trying to find a space for themselves in a world dominated by men and women's accommodations, and often they're quite funny. I always like that. And I'm not interested enough in the novel, whereas women's lives, yeah, they're interesting, how they accommodate, how they fight back, or what their stratagems are, and whether they work, whether they don't work. Mary Kay Wilmers is most well-known as the editor of the London Review of Books, a role she's been in for the past 26 years. Throughout her tenure there, the LRB has developed a reputation as both Europe's best literary publication and a lightning rod for controversy over articles on subjects as varied as the Duchess of Cambridge to 9-11. But Mary Kay Wilmers is also an esteemed writer, the author of the non-fiction book The Etignons, a 20th century story, which retraces the history of her Russian ancestors. In 2013, she even became a literary subject herself when her children's former nanny published a book of letters titled Love Nina that recounted her time living with Wilmers in the 1980s. Her latest book, an essay collection called Human Relations and Other Difficulties, was published earlier this year. I'm Megan Gibson, and I'm pleased to say she joins me in the studio for the big interview. Mary Kay Wilmers, thank you so much for joining us in our London studio. Thank you for asking me. I'm going to start right at the beginning. You were born in Chicago, and you grew up around Europe, Switzerland, Belgium, Portugal. I stayed in the States until I was six or seven, seven or eight, something like that, in different bits on the East Coast, mainly in New York and in Connecticut. Then we moved to Belgium. My parents stayed there till 1960, and I went to school there till I was 14, the bits like Portugal and Switzerland, they moved to Switzerland when my father retired. I never lived in Switzerland. I spent a summer in Portugal, I think, in 1946, but I didn't live there. Mm -hmm. And then you were educated in Brussels and the UK, is that right? Yeah, except for first and second, third grade, grade in yeah. the States. And so how do you think that international background and international childhood kind of shaped your work later on? I think it cuts you off a bit or it puts you in your own sort of category. You're not quite English, but on the other hand, my father seemed very English. And I like that. I like not entirely being part of things, seeing things from the outside. But sometimes you, you can get a bit paranoid as well. But um, <laughs> on the whole, I quite like it. I quite like saying annoyingly to my colleagues, well, I don't know, I'm foreign. <laughs> Does that get you out of having to, you know, answer to a few things? Yeah. <laughs> so you studied at Oxford, and then I read that you wanted to initially be a translator for the UN. Well, I thought it was very glamorous. It was new then. It seemed very glamorous. My father said I would get very bored. And having been there, since, I mean, just seeing what it's like, it would be awful. It's um, very stressful, isn't it? I think they have very short shifts. Very stressful. And yes, I mean, also, if you get it wrong, what happens in international relations? And in a sense, I've stayed like that in that I'm a ventriloquist. I mean, if you edit a paper, it's other people's views that you're putting forward. They're yours if you step back and think about it, but basically it's other people writing 
we may edit what they write, but we don't change the content. So you saw the shift to publishing as quite natural then from wanting to be a translator to just working well, with words in English. Yes. I mean, I didn't think of the ventriloquist notion came to me quite late, but I edited the school magazine and that's the sort of thing I, I like doing. I like putting forward other people's opinions. I find that my own only really extend one sentence or two. It's like my emails, they're all one line, unless someone else can think of something I could add. An email that's usually very appreciated, I think. (laughs) So there are similar things. And also the thing about translation is I quite like language. I'm interested in language and that have a facility for languages, a rough knowledge of Mm -hmm. languages. But I enjoy grammar and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So you went into the right profession then? Yes. So you started out initially as a secretary for Faber and Faber. I think it's still viewed as, you know, quite a glamorous, especially that era. So this would have been in the 60s? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the era that seems quite glamorous. Well, T.S. Eliot was there. Yeah, exactly. That that is glamorous. (laughs) Was Uh, it like that on the inside or you must have a different perspective? It was very, very nice. It was very patriarchal, Mm. but in a nice way. What do you mean by that? I mean, I've written a lot of pieces about men and how irritating they are. Um, But these men were maybe because they were old. I mean, Elliot was old and several other directors seemed to me very old then. They were thoughtful. They thought about you. They were interested in you. They did things that was very, very striking to me. On Tuesdays, we used to go through the manuscripts that had come in out of the blue, the slush pile, as it were. And I was one of the people. I was the token young person. And I kept pulling out First World War diaries and anything about the First World War, which then caused them to reprint some First World War diaries that they'd published in the 20s. That gives you a sense of your own importance Mm -hmm. that I didn't expect to have. And it happened with something else. And I said, oh, well, if you don't publish that, I'm leaving. And they A bold did. statement. <laughs> it, it, yeah. And then they published it. And they published it. So that must have made you really feel a, a sense of confidence <laughs> in your place there then. I don't think they thought I was going to leave. And I'm sure I wasn't going to leave. But I was just very shocked because it had an introduction by Thomas Mann. And I thought, how can you throw out something that... I mean, it was a mixture of naiveness, but it was encouraged and they were very sympathetic that way. So it was a nice place to work. Nothing else was nice in that way. way. So from that early foundation, you eventually went on to become part of the founding team at the London Review of Books. And that was in 1979. What were those early days at the paper like? Well, I'd worked with Carl Miller before. He was the first editor. And I'd worked with him at The Listener. He had quite a temper, so it was all sort of exciting and important and everything we did was important and getting the spelling right was important and being au fair with what people were talking about. I mean, the whole thing wasn't a crusade. It wasn't just bringing out a paper. It was a bit of a mission. You know that. It was started by the New York Review, so Mm -hmm. that gave it a context we didn't have 
to do all that. We just had to produce our paper that went inside the New York Review. Mm -hmm. It was very compelling. You don't always get to be in at the beginning of something and then the fact that it's carried on. And you went on to become the sole editor in 1992. Yeah. Do you think the direction or the mission or tone of the paper changed when you took over? I don't think so. I don't know that anyone else does. I mean, he was more literary than I am. I would rather not say anything about the poems than get into a quarrel with someone. People always have such strong feelings Mm. about them. So he was very engaged in every bit of it. What we share, and I think maybe other papers do less, is a commitment to every sentence. It's got to work as a sentence. And my colleagues are the same. I mean, it all comes from him, but it matters and it's fun. And not all contributors work that way, nor should they, because it takes longer to say things if if you have to work at your sentences. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. So you've published pieces by some of the UK's most celebrated contemporary writers, Hilary Mantle, Julian Barnes, Martin Amis. When you're working with writers of such a high caliber, do you have a certain approach to editing their work? Do you believe in a light touch? Or are you one of those editors who likes to tear the whole thing apart (laughs) and start again? No. Well, I'm too cowardly to, to do that, but I don't think I'm often tempted to change things in those people and Trina Barnes, Hilary Mantel. No, I don't. There's no need to change anything. I mean, they're known writers. They've got to be known because they were such good writers. Their talents, yes. And Hilary Mantel, she'd written quite a few novels, but she wasn't the celebrity that she now is then. I've read about the Turin Manifesto, and I wanted to ask you about that. I've looked at that again. (laughs) (laughs) I won't quiz you on it, but I just wanted to know, I guess, if any of the listeners don't know what it is, what it is, and the idea behind it. I think it was just that I was going to a conference in Turin. I'd never been to a conference before. I mean, that's mostly something academics do. Certainly in those days, I mean, now every writer has to go to a festival, which is like a conference, but I can't remember what the conference was called, but it it was about literary journalism. And being a dutiful person, I'd written out my manifesto, and so I called it, I referred to it as the Turin Manifesto, which is, I don't know, I'd have to send you a copy. I I can remember bits of it, like the writers send us their washing and we do the, the washing and the ironing, as it were, and that's our function. That's what editors do. So they send you the raw materials and you get it into order. Yes, but I mean, obviously, that's not the case with Frank Kermode or it depends who. But basically, some writers are very disparaging of editors and think that they're just people who can't write. So if you can't act, you teach acting and if you can't write. But on the whole, I don't, I'm not very sympathetic to creative writing courses and Mm. that sort of thing. I I think people should get something to write about rather than... Make it up out of thin air. Well, or or just rather than... Yeah, I don't know what they do. (laughs) 
So have you ever had, and I won't ask you to name any names, but have you ever had uh, just a terrific row with a writer about a piece? Yes, not a terrific row, but some writers are very keen on their jokes. (laughs) I've noticed that in the past, yes. (laughs) That's what causes most of the trouble. You've taken out all my jokes. So note to aspiring editors, watch the jokes. Yes. (laughs) That's the nerve. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, so the LRB has over the years published a number of, you could say, controversial pieces or pieces that inspired a lot of controversy. The first one that comes to mind is Hilary Mantel's piece, Royal Bodies, in which some people took umbrage about parts that discussed how the public perceives Kate Middleton. Oh, yes. Uh, Daily Mail went wild. David Cameron, who's then prime minister, issued a statement. Did you see that controversy coming? The British Museum let us put it out, so we had a certain amount of confidence Yes, you can see that it's coming, but you can also see that it's not serious. Should I be saying that? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> by all means. I think there was some progression that caused David Cameron to say something, but he, I'm sure he never saw the piece. He was in Singapore or something at the time. I don't see that you shouldn't be able to say things about the royal family And the thing that I thought was quite interesting, and maybe this was just, you know, the Daily Mail feeling a bit ashamed because it wasn't really about Kate Middleton or any of the royal figures as people. It was the public perception of them and how they are treated in the media. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, they don't see it that way. They don't choose to see it that way. Blaming Kate Middleton didn't hold anything against her. If anything, felt a bit sorry for her the way the media had treated her. Fantastic piece, so... Yeah, it, no, no, it is. I must make a list of the Turin Manifesto. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring up now another piece that was also controversial, and it was the post-9-11 piece that Mary Beard did, yeah. where she said that some people will feel that America had it coming. Yeah. And that caused a huge controversy on both sides of the Atlantic, When you publish a long, nuanced piece that really goes deeply into an issue, are you frustrated when then a single clause is plucked from the context and held up as a controversy or turned spun into a controversial thing to say? Well, no, in the the sense that we should see it coming and we can then discuss whether we're going to leave it in or take it out. And in fact, what she, she said, is people will say America had it coming, which was actually her original sentence. Well, yes, people will say that, and they did say that. Just to be pernickety, we didn't say that, although had she worded it differently, yes, we would have stood by it in any case, but I think we would have kept it if she'd said. You couldn't say the sentence without putting in, you could say that, or people will say, Mm -hmm. or something. In your own words, not in a paper like ours, say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to imagine the sentence without... Working any other way. Yeah. And in fact, not long after that, I was in Columbus, Ohio, a friend of mine lived there, at the airport... And who should I see coming in the other direction but Mary Beard? Oh. And she'd come from one lecture 
and she was on her way to another. So not all Americans felt so aggrieved they didn't cancel her appearance. They weren't rioting in the airport. <laughs> no. How do you deal when a piece kind of blows up that way and becomes controversial? Do you panic? Are you happy? Does it help sales? I don't really think about sales. It's sometimes more difficult not to think about hits. So I, I make a point of not knowing how many hits, apart from when it gets into the millions, then yes, then I'm interested. But Is that hits on the website then? Yeah. yeah. But otherwise... I try not to know because I don't think it's helpful. Mm. I kind of have a streak of defiance. As long as it's something I'm willing to face. If I go along with the sentiment, then I'm happy to take the heat. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you've also been quoted as saying that you are on the left, but not of the left. I wondered what you make of the state of the left-wing politics in the UK at the moment. It's too much of a mess to even say anything about. I think it's incompetent, mainly. Well, the Um, thing I'm quite interested about a lot of the political pieces that the London Review of Books take, it's always not ambiguous, but very nuanced and looks at multiple sides and multiple angles of things. And it seems increasingly in politics today, not just in the UK, but, you know, across Europe, in the US, you're either for or against. There's no middle ground and there's no one willing to kind of, in the media especially, just balance things a little bit more. Has that made it more difficult or easier to commission political pieces? It would make it, if anything, easier because there are more targets. Yes, it's also more awful, but, you know, you try to be a bit more nuanced than that. There's a lot to say. I mean, I don't know. I I think if I see one more piece about how democracy is at an end, I can shoot myself, as it were, (laughs) but not quite. It gets very Mm samey and nothing happens. I mean, Trump, 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 but when's he going to go? What happened to assassin? Yes, I'm waiting for that piece now in the London Review of Books. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your first book. So you wrote a book about your family history, yeah. um, your mother's Russian relatives during the Cold War, including a family member who was uh, agent for Stalin. What drew you to writing this book? So I've always been interested in the Cold War. And then if you're told that a relative of yours assassinated Trotsky, well, you know, actually, I quite like Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm a Trotsky, but I do like him. And he was clever and could see more points of view than, say, Stalin. But would you think it would be morally wrong not to find out more? Mm-hmm. There was that, and there was it was a slightly bad phase at the London Review, so I thought I wanted to have a project, and that seemed to me to be the right one. I mean, that it would be, in some sense, inexcusable not to investigate it, and I liked research. Then I discovered that another member of the family who in the same relation to it as me, who's a writer, was also interested in it, so that caused me to speed up a bit. You can get the book out first. <laughs> yes. Apart from having a relative who assassinated Trotsky, who was the most 
surprising thing you've discovered in your research? Well, there was really the, the ins and outs of that bit of it. There was the psychoanalyst who was a friend of Freud's, which was quite interesting. The fur dealing didn't interest me particularly. And the fact that they all knew each other, had dealings with each other, either at first hand or at second hand. You quite like to think that your family is involved in world history. Well, that's something else that's run, you know, a kind of a current that's run through a lot of the pieces in the London Review of Books is the element of the personal that a lot of writers bring into, even even book reviews. Yeah. Is that something that you consciously made a decision on that you ask for writers to bring into? Mm, no, but we don't cut it out if it seems to work. And we published autobiographical pieces. We published quite a few pieces by Hilary Mantel about her life, about her illness. And Jenny Diskey, they were all personal pieces. I don't know, it just developed that way. Sometimes pieces are more honest if if there's a personal element. I think it's just, it's not something we discourage. I think it works well. Well, then there's the other side of that question. I'm going to ask about Nina Stibb, who was your nanny in the 1980s. <laughs> oh, yes. And she wrote a piece about working for you. She wrote a book. Yes, yes. How, how did it feel to have someone else writing about your life? Well, better to ask me, how did it feel to be played by Helena Bonham Carter? Yes, so the book was turned into a television <laughs> show and your character was played by <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. The thing is, I saw the book beforehand. She had asked me over a few years whether I would mind if she published these letters. It took you a few years to say yes. Yes. But now I'm glad I did because I think the book is good. Was there a temptation to edit or tell her, you've got me all wrong? Or did you agree mostly with? I agreed mostly. I mean, there were things I didn't want said or didn't want said of the children or whatever, but not much. Hmm. It was completely painless, really. She didn't put us down, and we seemed very funny, and that was good. <laughs> That's always a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so now that brings me to your new book, which is called Human Relations and Other Difficulties, which is actually a collection of essays that you've done over decades, so, so not new pieces. No. But when I was reading it, despite it being a wide-ranging book covering lots of different topics, one common thread I noticed in a lot of the pieces was its focus on women and women's experiences. So you've got pieces on motherhood and menopause and mistresses to actual people like Patty Hearst and Joan Didion. What is it about these different subjects that attracted you? Is there a through line or is there a certain thing that you know, usually catches your eye? Well, it, it's obviously autobiographical. It's obviously to do with women trying to find a space for themselves in a world dominated by men, maybe less so now, but not so then. And women's accommodations, and often they're quite funny. I always like that. And I'm not interested enough in the novel. I mean, I mean, you know, it's fine to read, but I haven't got... The novel in you. Yeah, no, and I, the novel as form doesn't especially interest me, but not to a great extent. Whereas women's lives, 
yeah, they're interesting, how they accommodate, how they fight back, or what their stratagems are, and whether they work, whether they don't work. So it's just something I find, I used to find myself doing, and then also I'd be given those books because I, I think because I made those remarks all the time, basically. Yes, you've said you appreciate difficult women. Yeah. And none of the women you write about really in the book are, I guess, conventional hero figures. No. But they all have good ways of putting things, so it's nice to quote them. Okay, I'm going to shake it up a little bit. I'm going to do a quick fire round, if that's okay. I'm going to say a word or a phrase or a name, and you can just say the first thoughts that come to your head. And there's no right or wrong, so just whatever you think. So Vladimir Putin. Bad. Facelift and bad. Face work and bad. Donald Trump. Also bad, but funnier. Literary prizes. Don't like them. Social media. Obviously very harmful, but I don't participate, so I don't know. Brexit. Idiotic. Brussels. Well, it's such a terrible place to live. (laughs) The publishing industry today. Not so good. The media industry today. Not so good. Well, that's it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I've just fired a bunch of negative things at you. (laughs) But why don't we go back to the London Review of Books? So you've been there since the beginning. You've been the editor for almost 30 years. And you're also its majority stakeholder. Can you ever see yourself retiring? I think about it a lot, especially in the summer. I find work as the solution to most states of mind, so I carry on. I don't do as much as I used to do. I'm not as quick. But retiring, yes, if I thought I, was, I would be good at it. You don't imagine you'd be a good retiree? Not really. I have fantasies of what it would be like. Do you, you think know. you'll always kind of have, have a hand in the paper? Possibly, although, yeah, most likely. Mm-hmm. But half a hand is, is not that much fun. Who would be, and you don't have to name a specific person, but maybe just characteristics of this person, who would be the ideal candidate to take over the paper after your tenure? Someone who minded about sentences. And what Um, advice would you give to them? Look at the sentences. (laughs) Make sure of the headings. The rest will follow. Mary Kay Wilmers, thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Mary Kay Wilmers. Her latest book, Human Relations and Other Difficulties, is published by Profile and out now. The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galvin. I'm Megan Gibson. Thanks for listening.